Well, we are tackling a very big section as, we, as I get to continue on in the study of Acts. Dan preached last week and, and talked about the, uh, the, the six that were set apart here in chapter 6. And I'm picking up with the ministry of Stephen, and Pastor Daryl and I were discussing this, that it's really one long section, and it's really good just to see the whole thing all at once. And so I get to do what my namesake did, right? He preached, Stephen preached the longest recorded sermon in the Bible, and I get to preach that same sermon, and my name is Stephen. My prayer, though, I've been praying for you that I would have a different outcome than he had, and so that is how I've been praying for you, that it would end a little better for me than it did for him, with the same missional emphasis at the end as well. But we're jumping into this, and we've got a lot to cover, so I'm actually not going to do the scripture reading, because we're just going to walk through this passage together. We begin a, a unique section, Dan referenced it last week, it's really what you'd call section two of the book of Acts. The book of Acts can be divided into three sections, centered around Acts 1-8, in which Jesus said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the world, and you can see the book of Acts unfolding that way. Chapter 1 through chapter 6, verse 7 is the ministry in Jerusalem. Starting here in 6-8 is the ministry to Judea, Samaria. And then starting in chapter 9, verse 32, starts the mission to the world. And so you can see the book kind of unfold in this glorious way. And we're going to see how the Lord mobilized the church to take the gospel to Judea and Samaria. And I want you to understand when I say mobilizing the church, I mean literally mobilizing the people of the church. There's a unique shift that happens here in the ministry of Stephen where suddenly it's no longer just the apostles. Now it's the ministry going out by way of the people. And it's launching this evangelistic and church planting ministry. And so we have got a lot to cover. I'd like to just give you a, uh, an outline to kind of hang our hat on here, hang our thoughts on. And uh, I didn't intend for it to alliterate, but it did, which showed me it might have been of the Lord. And so... The idea was this, that, that the first thing you see in chapter 6, verses 8 through 15 is what we can simply call the setting. The situation is being set up as to what's going to lead to this ministry of Stephen. And then we move to chapter 6, verse 15, all the way to chapter 7, verse 53. We get the sermon. And we get a chance to hear the sermon that Stephen proclaimed. And then in 7:54 through 60, there's the stoning. He gets the response of the people who were there. But then in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, there's the scattering as the Lord just sends the people out. So we're going to see this today. Now, there are three things that I would like for you to get from this sermon today. There are three things. I'm sorry, I'm going to be battling this earpiece all day. It just will not conform to my ears. So I hope that doesn't distract you here. But there's three things that I want you to get from this message today. The first one is this. As we're going through it, I want you to be observing how God worked in and throughout history. You've got to see this. This is one of the things that's, that's, that's illuminated in this passage here that God shows us is how he worked in and throughout history. You need to see that. It's critical. The second thing that I want you to see as we go through this is the sin of the religious leaders. I actually want you to see what their sin specifically was. And I want you to pick that up as we go through. The third thing that I'd like for you to see is how God used this event to advance the gospel. So I want you to see how God used the event to advance the gospel. In seeing those three things, I think a, a wonderful kind of application will come at the end of this. 
So let's begin, because we've got a lot to cover here. Let's look at the setting. Look at verse 8 here. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And so, as we can see in, in, in this, when this issue comes up, that they were to pick seven men of good repute to help solve this problem of the, the widows who weren't being fed, one of the men that was picked was Stephen. In the course of this of Stephen, we get a little bit, the, the storyline kind of focuses on him, and we learn three things about Stephen. Number one, that he was full of grace. I'm just going to give you a simple definition of what that means, because later we're going to come back to it. So simple definition is that his life, his lifestyle matched the gospel. The way that he lived and interacted with the world was consistent with the gospel. Just hold that thought. It will come back later. And then power. God was manifesting his power through Stephen. How was he doing that? That's the third thing that we see. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Now, as the storyline unfolds, I want you to understand what is meant when you see this element of great signs and wonders that were going on. What were these great signs and wonders? Probably the same types of things that was going on with Peter. People were getting healed, and demons were being cast out, amazing things were going on. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, we get an understanding as to what was going on while these great signs and wonders were going on. In Hebrews 2, we're told that, that the apostles, as they were proclaiming, the Lord was allowing that message to be matched with signs and wonders, to, in essence, emphasize what we're saying is from God. Right? We're not just offering our thoughts about God. This isn't just some exercise in kind of philosophy or religion. We're actually proclaiming to you the very Word of God, which has the power of God connected to it. And we know that Stephen is doing this, that he's proclaiming this, because look at verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, of the Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up, and what did they do? They disputed with Stephen. So he is also proclaiming. And what's interesting is that we get this description of people who are disputing him. And why do we get this description? Well, we're learning a little bit about those who are arguing with him. First of all, you've got the synagogue of the freedmen. Most people go, who are the synagogue of the freedmen? Who are these people? Several years before this, Rome had taken a bunch of Jews as slaves, made them slaves. As a result, they could not worship. They couldn't do anything. They were slaves in Rome. Then they were set free, and anytime you were set free, you got the name freedman. So now you are no longer a slave. They set up a synagogue in Jerusalem, as well as many other places, and they were really committed to the teaching because they had been slaves and they weren't allowed to study Scripture. And so these guys are real passionate about their, their study, and so you could see why they would be debating with Stephen. And then you've got people from, uh, from Egypt, right? The Cyrenians and Alexandrians. They're, they're, they're from a synagogue that was in Egypt. And then we see this Cilicia in Asia, another synagogue. And what's interesting about Cilicia is that there is a town in Cilicia, a very prominent town that had a very prominent synagogue, and that town was Tarshish. So anybody know somebody from Tarshish, right? Saul of Tarshish. And so we're getting an understanding now that we have in this moment leaders from these various synagogues. And in this space, we will find out at the end of the stoning part, Saul is there. Now, we can assume, this is somewhat of a safe assumption, I think, Saul is arguing along with the rest of these leaders with Stephen. Now, picture this, an unconverted Saul arguing with Stephen. I hope there's a DVD library in heaven. I want to see that. 
Because Stephen is schooling him. Right? Stephen is schooling him. He, they cannot keep up, right? The, these guys, they were disputing with him. And what happened? Look at verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. These guys are trying to argue with him. Now, what is Stephen preaching? Well, we can get an idea in a minute of what he was preaching just by the way they attack him. Look at verse 11. Then they secretly investigated, or instigate, sorry, they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council, and they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. So what's the accusation? The accusation involves the fact that, that, that they were accusing Stephen of preaching against the law of Moses, against God, against the nation of Israel, and against the temple. Now Stephen wasn't preaching against any of those things. But we do know that the apostolic message was what? That Jesus Christ fulfilled the law and the body of Christ is his temple. That in Christ, you fulfill the law. And when you are in Christ, we all become stones and we become part of his temple. So this is the message he's probably no doubt proclaiming. They, of course, bear false witness, break the law of God, and get people to say, oh, he's anti-temple, he's anti-Israel, he's anti-this, he's anti-that. And so now he is brought before a council. Now notice verse 15. This is where Stephen and I depart because it says, in gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that he had the face like an angel, face of an angel, which I don't think I have a face of an angel. But here's the issue. This is very critical, verse 15. You've got to catch what's happening at this moment. Here's what's critical about it. Stephen has the glory of God shown on his face. Now, what's one of the accusations? He's preaching against Moses. What happened to Moses when he went into the tent of meeting with God in Exodus 34, 29? He would come out and what would his face be shining of? The glory of God. You're accusing this guy of being against Moses and God is saying, no, 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 no. He's just like Moses. I'm letting my glory shine upon his face. But they can't see it. They can't see it. And so this leads us now. That's the setting. So the setting is, he is proclaiming the gospel, right? He's proclaiming the gospel. I think I can fix this one other way here, maybe. Sorry. He's proclaiming the gospel. They're accusing him of being anti-Moses, anti-land, anti-temple, anti-everything. He's standing there with the glory of God upon his face, like Moses. And now this leads us to the sermon. And we get to this sermon. And if we go... And we can look at this sermon. And by the way, I have kind of broken this sermon down into a couple of, or actually I've given it an outline, okay? Because as he is there, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 7, and the high priest said, are these things so? So he wants to know, is this true? Are you preaching against these things? So here comes the launch of the sermon. And, and I've kind of looked at his sermon. I was trying to find the structure of it. What is he saying in this sermon? Because sometimes you could read it and think, all he's doing is just giving a, a, an account of the history of Israel. That's all he's doing. And so you might read it and say, okay, it's a history of Israel. 
But it's not that. He's answering the issue. Is he attacking Moses? Is he attacking Israel? Is he attacking the temple? Is he attacking God? That's the accusation. He's going to respond by saying, I am not attacking Israel. I am not attacking Moses. I am not attacking God. I'm not attacking the temple. I'm going after you. I'm attacking you. And that's kind of how this sermon flows. And so here's a structure that I've kind of given to it. The first thing that he does in his sermon, so here's outline number two that sits within this. Stephen's sermon. There is the place of God's work. That's the first thing he wants to point out. God, we, we need to look and see the places that God has worked. Then we need to see the pattern of Israel's rejection. And then we want to see the presence of God's Spirit. So he, he talks about the place where God works, the pattern of their rejection, the presence of God's Spirit, and then his conclusion, you're in rebellion, not me. And that's where things go south. But let's look here. Let's, so we'll look at the sermon, and let's look at the place where God has worked. And he begins with Abraham. Okay? And the first statement he wants to make, which is very critical, it might seem subtle, but it's critical. Here's his first statement he wants to make. God appeared in Mesopotamia. This is the first point he wants to make under the place of God's work. Look at verses 2 through 4. Okay? He says, Brothers, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into that land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran and his father died. God removed him from there and this into this land in which you are now living. Now you say, well, what's the point of saying that? One of the teachings that that, that was going on at this time was that God is only at work in Israel, in this place, in this spot. God is localized. And Stephen begins by saying, hold on a minute. If we want to go back to our history and the forming of our people, where were our people called out of? Our people were called out of Mesopotamia, or how about we use a little different word that might make more sense to you, the nation of Israel was called out of Babylon. The root of this nation is a Babylonian guy by the name of Abram. He was a Gentile, a Babylonian Gentile. He said, Do you understand when God was forming this nation, he went into Mesopotamia, which is like the bad place. And he formed us out of there. God is so much bigger. He was at work in Mesopotamia long before he was at work in this spot of land we call Israel. It's the implication of it. Not only that, his second point he's going to make in verses 5 through 7 is that Abraham was an alien and stranger in the land. Look at 5 through 7. Yet he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession to his offspring after him, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect that his offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. But I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. So even after Abram was called and the generations start, the patriarchs start to come from Abram, what happens? They're not even allowed in the land. They wind up as sojourners and aliens and then they wind up in enslavement for 400 years. 
Then they got to do another 40 years just to get to the land. Guys, do you understand if God was only at work in Israel, why was our formation for hundreds of years outside of this place? You can get the idea of, of, of what he's implying here with them, which gives him his third point, which is that God gave us even the sign of Israel outside of this land. God gave us the sign of Israel. Look at verse 8. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and, and circumcised him on the eighth day, and Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob the twelve patriarchs. Even circumcision, our greatest sign that we have, that we are Jews, did not occur in this land of Israel. How could you accuse me of attacking Israel? It makes no sense. Because God has already shown that he's at work everywhere. And the place of God's work is the world, not this land. I can't be attacking God by talking about the fact that people from every tribe, nation, and tongue can be part of the temple of God. I can't do that. I can't be speaking against it because God's already proven He works outside. I think this is His point. So then what He does is from talking about the place where God works, He looks at the pattern of Israel's rejection. And what He wants to do is He's going to use two people from history, Joseph and Moses, to make the point that every time God has raised someone up, you guys have rejected him. So this is his next point he goes in. Now look at, verse, look at Joseph. And the first thing he wants to say about Joseph is that Joseph was mistreated by his brothers. Look at verses 9 and 10. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. So look at this, man. God was raising up Joseph, but what, you guys were jealous of him. You, when he got that coat, you guys wanted to kill him. You tossed him into this well, and you sold him off into slavery, but here's the reality. God had a plan for him, and God had a plan that he was going to rule over Egypt. Man, and that was actually shown to you. It was prophetically shown to you that he was going to be a ruler and that people were going to bow down before him, but what did you do? You were jealous, and you sold him off. Then the second point he wants to make is, but you know what? The guy that, you, that your ancestors sold off, he was the way of salvation for your ancestors. Look at verse 11 through 16. Now there came a famine throughout all of Egypt and Canaan and great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died. And he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem and laid in a tomb that Abraham had brought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamor in Shechem. What's his point there? Man, Joseph was the guy who actually could save the, 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 the tribe of Israel, the people of Israel. And so you guys had to go to him, and you guys had to get food from him. The one you rejected is the one who was there to, that God was raising up to save you. Then he moves to Moses, going to make the same point again. Now this isn't, in essence, you could kind of see him if he were preaching it, kind of in front of people saying, you know what, and this wasn't just a one-time issue here, because now look at Moses. Moses is the next example of how, 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 how much you reject the people of God. Look at verse, starting in verse 17, all the way through verse 29. But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt 
until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight, and he was brought up for three months in, the father's, in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own. And Moses was instructed in all of the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. And when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, and seeing one of them being wrong, he defended the oppressed man, and he avenged him by striking down the Egyptians. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them, and they were quarreling and, they, and, and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became in exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now at this moment, God is clearly setting aside Moses saving him, allowing him to be raised in Pharaoh's household. He's a wise man. He's a strong man. He comes in. He, he, he believes as a, as, a, as, as, as a Jew, he's going to come in and save his people. And what happens? They don't want him. They've rejected him. And so what happens? God's at work again. And where is God going to be at work? He's at work in Midian. He's not at work in Israel. He's at work in Midian. So notice God is at work. Look at verses 30 through 35. When the 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire and in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet. The place where you're standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent both as ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. God was at work. God called this guy. He was their redeemer. He was their savior. He was the one, not spiritually, but he was the one who was actually going to free them from slavery in Egypt. And this was the guy that Israel said, we don't want. You're getting the pattern here, right? Rejection. But he's not done. I mean, like Stephen is just sticking to his guns. Just to make the point one more time, he's going to say, now there's going to be another evidence of your rejection because Moses was rejected by the Jews after the exodus look at verse 36 this man led them out performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years this is the Moses who said to the Israelites God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to idols and were rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven 
as it was written in the book of the prophets. This is a quote from Amos 5. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during your 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took upon the tent of Moloch and the star of your god Rephian the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. That's in Amos 5 where he's telling him, you guys, are just, you guys never worship me and I'm going to send you to Babylon. It's a statement of judgment, Amos 5, very strong section here. Stephen puts that in there because he's saying, listen, man, Moses clearly showed that he was the man that God was raising up to save you. And after all that happened, man, he goes away to the mountain and you guys are right away trying to build an idol. Do you understand every time God has provided someone for you, you have rejected them? This is the pattern. But then what he wants to do in his third point to his sermon as he kind of wraps up his theology, he wants to say, but listen, you've got to understand something. God's Spirit and God's work is for the world. It is not just for this place, and it's not just for this tabernacle, because he's already established the fact that I'm not speaking against Moses, and I'm not speaking against the land of Israel. I'm not speaking against these things. I'm not speaking against the law of God. And in this last point, he wants to tell him I'm not speaking against the temple. Because their theology at that time was like only God is in the temple. That's the only place God is. He's in the temple. Which is kind of funny because these are Pharisees arguing with them who won't go to the temple. But that, that point is being missed by them. But here's the reality. They're saying only God is there. And Stephen, in essence, is going to tell them in this last point, if only God's presence and spirit is in the temple, then that doesn't jive with our history. Because God's spirit and presence has been everywhere. So notice now he gets to the presence of God's Spirit. And he wants to tell him, man, there were two structures that God used in the Old Testament. We had a structure before the temple, and that was called the tabernacle. Look here at verse 44 through 47. Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. Just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua. And when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. So it was until the days of David who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. What's his point? Wait a minute, if God's only at work in the temple, then what about the tabernacle? And the tabernacle was going on out in the desert. If God is only in Jerusalem there, that doesn't make any sense because God's presence was in that tent. And that tent was mobile and it was going with us and we didn't get this tabernacle until Solomon. So what does that tell you? God cannot only be at work in this, in this temple. I'm not attacking the temple. Okay, this is his point. But then he goes on and builds the theology even bigger because God doesn't dwell in buildings at all. Look at verse 48. Yet Moses, yet the Most High, sorry, yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet said, Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So you can see he's quoting from Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. And it, the, here's the idea. If God could sit down, right? It's kind of like you know, this kind of big picture idea. If God could sit down, the seat would be heaven. And he would put his feet up on our planet. This is what Isaiah said. So then Isaiah kind of just says, so think about this for a minute. 
What kind of building are you going to make for a God like that? See, here's the reality. We don't make houses for God. God makes houses for us. God isn't in the temple. The temple is in God. Earth is in God. God is not in the earth. We exist and are surrounded by God. We, he goes before us. He goes behind us. He's on top of us. We are encapsulated by God. Come on, guys. You really think God is only in that building? I mean, this is kind of the essence of what he's saying. Really? Theologically? That's where you're going to hang your hat. Makes no sense. So now he gets to his application, right? Because he's told them, Israel's not the only place where God works. He's worked all over the world. You guys have a pattern of rejecting God, God's men. And God doesn't live in the temple. The temple exists within God, and the earth exists within God. And, and God is so big, there's no way. What kind of house could you build for him? And so now comes his application. And I got to tell you, this is quite the application. It's a three-point application. And I can say that I have never applied a sermon this way in my life. That's probably why I'm still alive. Okay. Here's his first point. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. God has revealed himself, and you guys are so stubborn. You are continuing the pattern. God has provided his Redeemer, and you, like your fathers, are still hard-hearted and stiff-necked. Second application, right? So the first application, you're resisting the Holy Spirit. Second application, you're persecuting the sent one of God. Look at verse 52. 52. Which of the prophets did your father not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Your fathers are killing all the prophets. Your fathers are, are trying to do away with these people. And then John the Baptist comes and he dies. And then what happens? Man, you guys are against. And then you're out trying to kill us Christians. And then what happens? Even Jesus came and you murdered him. Man, you have always gone after the sent ones of God. You are like your fathers. And then he comes to the last point of application, which is you are breaking the law of Moses. He says, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. And it's pretty clear because what have they done to create this problem, this court case? They were bearing false witness. I believe that's in the Bible. Don't do that. Right? They have gathered people for false witness. He's like, you guys are the breakers of the law. So, we've seen the setting. We've now finished the sermon. And now we need to see the stoning. Okay? Here's the stoning. Here's our third point in, in our bigger message. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So you get the picture. I mean, I've never seen somebody grind their teeth in anger, but I can imagine that's pretty angry. Right? I mean, that's, that's a lot of tension up there. They are mad. But then here is where this thing goes really crazy. Here's the moment when, when the, this is the hand grenade. This is where, where, where the spark goes off. Look at verse 55 and 56. You can't miss what's happening here. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. 
They know exactly what he said. Behold, I, he's bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus. And he's saying, I see Jesus standing next to God in heaven. He has just declared the resurrection that Jesus is God and that everything he's been proclaiming is true. And at this moment, he announces this powerful thing. Christ has risen. I see him. He is in heaven and he is God. It is a most powerful statement. And notice what happens. From grinding their teeth, notice verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. So you you get the idea. They're plugging their ears. They're screaming. They don't want to hear the gospel. They are truly stiff-necked and stubborn people. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Verse 58, and witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of the young man named Saul. So here is where Saul enters the story. What a moment for Saul, huh? Now, look at verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Remember earlier I said, what does it mean to be full of grace? And I said that you have a lifestyle according to the gospel. Here's what that means, man. These guys are murdering him, and he's praying that God would save them. Same thing Jesus was doing. He prayed that God would save them. And what is so cool is God answered that prayer, right? Acts chapter 9, who gets saved? Paul. The baton is going to go from Stephen to Paul. God answers that prayer in the text. We see an answer. Lord, don't hold him against him. Not only are you not going to hold him against him, the very guy from Tarsus who was at this moment and holding the coats and persecuting the church, I'm going to raise up to take the gospel to the nations. Right? It's powerful. Okay, so we've seen... Thank you for hanging on, man. We are almost done here. We've seen the setting, the sermon, the stoning, and now we've got to see the last part here, and then we'll kind of tie it all together for us. The scattering. The scattering. Look at chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea, Samaria, except the apostles. It's an interesting statement. First of all, some wonder why the apostles didn't go. Is that a bad thing? You know, here's the reality that, the, that in Acts 1 8, it says Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the world, right? It's and, 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 not then, 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 right? It's not first Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, then the world. It's the idea that it's and. We're doing it all. We've got to be faithful everywhere. So they stay. But actually, I'm not looking at that statement except the apostles as a negative statement because what I'm noticing is that the persecution rose against the church and they were all scattered throughout the region of Judea Samaria except the apostles, meaning that the people were now going. The people are heading out. The people are leaving because the people are being persecuted because as we're going to see in a minute, the people have picked up the mission. And it went from being led by Peter, and we're just watching the story of Peter being persecuted and John being persecuted, to now the people are getting. And the people are going. And notice, they were not afraid. They were not afraid to identify with Stephen. Look at verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen, which I think it's possibly it's the other remaining six, buried Stephen, and they made great lamentation over him. Right? I mean, this was like a public thing, man. They weren't hiding like when Christ died and everyone was hiding in the upper room. And they were publicly identifying with them. And then verse 3, but Saul ravaged the church. 
the ecclesia, the called out ones. And notice this. Here's the surprise. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and what? Women. That was unheard of, to have a woman be arrested like that. But why? Why is he arresting the women? What's the implication? Who is Paul arresting? Paul's going to arrest anyone who's proclaiming the message that Stephen's been preaching because they hate that message. He's not just running around arresting people. He's arresting people who are carrying on the work of this ministry of Stephen. And the implication here is now this ministry is going out to Judea and Samaria, and eventually it's going to head out, as you'll see in a few weeks, in Antioch, and then from Antioch it's going to go to the world. And it's going to be carried on the backs, not just of the twelve, but of the body of Christ. It's a powerful moment. Very powerful moment. So, let's wrap this up here. Let's tie this all together. The beginning, I said, hey, man, there are three things I want you to get. How God worked throughout history, the sin of the religious leaders, and how God used this event to advance the gospel in the world. And I want to make just a couple observations on those things that I want to make sure you get. Number one, how God worked in and through history. Here's a key to this. Sometimes in our wanting to create frameworks to do ministry in, we can put God in a box. We can basically create a framework and say, this is how God works, and anything outside of that is not God. And that's what was going on. The religious leaders had created a a framework and a theology that God was domesticated under their thoughts, under their uh, opinions, under their framing. And then suddenly you begin to see that God is at work in ways that you could never imagine, doing things that you could never imagine He would do. And it's just so true that you begin to realize that we can't domesticate God because what happens is that we can actually take God and, and only place Him working at the level of our own comfort. But you see, when you see how He works in the world, He's at work in ways bigger than you could ever imagine. God does exceedingly abundantly, Paul says, beyond what you could ever think or imagine. Whatever vision you have for the world is too small because God's vision is way bigger. Right? He, this is what we see, man. He was calling people, man, the, the, the nation of Israel was founded out of Babylon. Just get your mind around that. The apostle Paul, who's ravaging the church, who is in this key moment in the church, becomes the guy who leads it to the nations. God is doing amazing things. This is how he works through history. But the second thing I want you to point out was the sin of religious leaders, which you've kind of already touched on. Their sin was that they believed that they were the ones who came up with the right theology about God and that even God had to adjust themselves to them. And that's what we can do sometimes. We can say, listen, God, God can't work that way. I want God to work this way. And usually, when I start setting up my own religion, it usually starts with my comfort. It usually starts with me being blessed. It usually starts with God solving all of my problems and making everything great for me. And, and, so it's, and then if he, when he doesn't do that, we begin to say, God, aren't you here? Your, your presence isn't here. Why have you rejected me? Why have you denied me? Why, are, why aren't you speaking to me? And the reality is, is, is that what we end up saying is, man, I'm just, I've just cre- I domesticated God around my thoughts. This was their sin. And they were stiff-necked because every time the Lord worked, they rejected it. Because they didn't want the God of the world. They wanted the God they created. That was their sin. And therefore, they rejected his offer of salvation. But the third thing I said is 
wanted you to see was how God used this event to advance the gospel. What's amazing about this story is that this persecution was more than just Stephen being persecuted. This is what the Lord used to unleash the church. And now the storyline is not focusing just on the 12. The storyline is starting to focus on other people and this mission being carried out. And the reality is this, that God uses the trials and the things that we would define in our flesh as horrible as the means through which his mission is carried out. This is why Paul said in Colossians, I'm making up what's lacking in Christ's suffering. He's not saying Christ didn't suffer enough. What he's saying is I'm continuing on the work. And when we continue on the work, the Lord is using trials and suffering to advance his kingdom. That is the cross, right? The cross is the ultimate suffering of someone. And through this cross, the ultimate injustice of the world, salvation comes to the nations. And so trials doesn't stop the work of God. It continues it. So here are three take-homes, and then I'm going to pray here. Three take-homes for you. Number one, God is at work in ways that are bigger than you can imagine. You just have to believe that and understand that. Don't domesticate God. He's at work in ways bigger than you can imagine. Number two, don't try to keep God in the realm of your comfort. God pushes you to the edges. Being on mission for God keeps you at the edges. Every time I participate in the mission of advancing the gospel, life gets tough. And it makes me uncomfortable, and I always feel like a dummy. And I don't know what to say, and I don't know what to do. And there are moments and stories I could tell you where I'm standing there like I have no clue what to say or do. I'm just going to stand here and be silent because the Proverbs say even a fool looks wise when he keeps his mouth shut. And so I can follow that. And yet in those edges, you see God working in amazing ways. But the third take home is this. When trials come and you mourn in the face of pain and death, don't think for one moment Satan's taking a victory lap. He's cowering. Because it's in the pain and in the suffering that God is advancing and working. Trials and death, martyrdom are the tools God uses. They're not victories of Satan. They're the advancement of Jesus. This is, this is what we see here. And this is what unfolds for us. And this is the great news of, that we are continuing and participating in this same work. Let's pray. Father, this was a big passage and and a powerful moment. I thank you for the mission and message of Stephen that he reminds us of this incredible reality that that first and foremost, man, you've been at work in Babylon. You've been work in places outside. Man, we don't have to go to a place to worship you. We're not a religion that takes us to a specific river or to a specific city or to a specific building, but that you are here and your spirit has been given. And on this day of Pentecost that we celebrate this, we celebrate the fact that you are a global God and you are everywhere. I thank you that Stephen reminds us of the fact that we domesticate you and and make you servant to our flesh, that we become stiff-necked and stubborn and we reject what you put before us for your advancement. But I thank you, Lord God, that you are at work among the nations. I thank you that you are at work everywhere, that your presence is here and that you can call us to be used by you. And through horrible tragedies, 
that sometimes we think define our life in a negative way, these become the elements that push us into mission even further. Lord God, I thank you for this glorious passage and may the truth of it just shape the way we think and shape the way we live. In Christ's name, amen.